Women's Health Melbourne is an innovative, holistic fertility and women's health practice. We are world leaders in IVF and egg freezing and provide our patients with every opportunity to achieve their goals. Our hand-picked expert team provides the ultimate care experience for our patients. Reach us at womenshealthmelbourne.com.au and follow us at Women's Health Melbourne and at Dr Rayleigh Alou. Welcome back to Knocked Up, the podcast about fertility and women's health. You are joined as always by me, Jodie Morrison, and Dr. Rayleigh Alou, CREI Fertility Specialist. Rayleigh, I actually can't believe we haven't done this topic before. When you said to me, let's do OHSS, I said, how have we not done that? And I checked, and in over four years of episodes, we've never talked about it. Look, OHSS, I have to say, is something that I don't have to manage that much in my practice. and. I'm lucky in that I've been an IVF doctor really for the last decade only and in that time we've had access to really safe medications. It's a modern way of practicing IVF. So I very seldom would in my clinical world have one of my patients have hyperstimulation. So when I talk to my patients about hyperstimulation, and I talk to all of my IVF patients about the theoretical risks of hyperstimulation, I say to my patients, look, there are ways that we can keep you safe. And our strategy that we use in IVF may be guided by those principles, but I will not let you get sick with hyperstimulation syndrome under my watch. And that's something I'm very proud of. And it's something really that we all should aspire to as IVF doctors. So that might be one of the reasons that we haven't really talked about it. But I I think we should talk about it because it is an important pathology in IVF. And we should never lose sight of the fact that what we do in IVF is very non-physiological. It goes against what our body would want to do naturally in an ovulatory cycle. I know it and it's why it resonates with me because after my egg collection, I was given the piece of paper explaining to me what OHSS was and told you've had a lot of eggs collected. I was very lucky slash had an amazing doctor and I just had a few things I had to watch out for. Now, I didn't experience OHSS, but I was a bit sore. So maybe because you're better than a piece of paper, do you want to explain to us what it is? Yes, and caveat at Melbourne IVF where I practice, anyone who has more than 18 eggs collected, regardless of the type of medicine that they have been given, is going to receive that piece of paper. So if you receive that piece of paper, the warning sheet about hyperstimulation, it doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to get hyperstimulation. In fact, I would say you'd have to give out a hundred of those pieces of paper to even have someone who's even on the spectrum of hyperstimulation um, in my practice. Hyperstimulation is really something that we do to every IVF patient. Hyperstimulation is giving medicines to make you ripen more than one egg in a cycle. Hyperstimulation syndrome, however, is when you become unwell due to the downstream impacts of the fact that you've ripened multiple eggs in a cycle 
in the context of having been given in 99 out of 100 times a classical IVF trigger of pregnancy hormone or HCG. Now, the reason that I'm very good at preventing hyperstimulation in my practice is I'm very conservative and if I think a patient has more than 20 follicles of size on their ultrasounds that I watch personally during their treatment, I will not be giving them that type of trigger. I will either be giving them a different type of trigger called a GNRH agonist trigger, which really minimizes the risk of hyperstimulation completely, but is not compatible with having an embryo put back in the same month. Or I would be cancelling their cycle if they were someone who were in the very tiny minority of patients who were not eligible to have a GnRH agonist trigger. And in that way, you can really, really, really minimise the risk of hyperstimulation. But let's talk about what it is. So if you imagine when you have a menstrual period and you ovulate one egg... There are lots of women around who feel some symptoms from that ovulation. You might feel bloated, you might retain fluid, and you might be in a bit of a dirty mood before you get a period. So there's symptoms that happen because of the hormonal changes of the menstrual cycle when you ripen one egg. And the hormone-making factory of the ovary begins in the beginning of the cycle as the follicle, so the structure around the egg, and then once the egg is released, those, those same um, cluster of cells switch gears, but they're still the hormone-making factory that supports the pregnancy, and they're called the corpus luteum. And usually, in a natural cycle context, there's just one of those, just one little factory on the ovary-making hormone. So let's just say you have a stimulated cycle in IVF and you have 10 eggs collected. Well, that means that there were 10 little hormone-making factories on your ovary and there are still, usually, after an egg collection, 10 little corpora lutei, we say, in terms of plural. So you have, in effect, 10 times the amount of hormone in your system, the same kind of hormone but just a higher dose, as you would have in a natural cycle. And it's quite normal to feel some symptoms from that, including bloating, mood change, fluid retention, and generally those symptoms will settle down but when they don't settle down and when they become more exacerbated, you can get what's called clinical hyperstimulation syndrome. It's very rare for someone to get hyperstimulation, even with the classical IVF trigger, the HCG trigger, which is really the cause of hyperstimulation in an IVF context, if they have fewer than 20 eggs collected at an egg collection. And generally, that's the line in the sand that I draw for my patients. And I'll usually say to my patients, if they do have more than 20 eggs collected in an egg collection, that it's not in their best interest, nor is it safe for them to have an embryo transfer in that month. And even if they've had an HCG trigger, because they've kind of been borderline and I thought they might get away with it, but suddenly a few little follicles since their last scan got up and they made 21 or 22 eggs something like that, then I'll say to them, look, I know you really want to have an embryo transfer. I know you, you're desperate to be pregnant, but I don't want to take the risk and I don't want you to get sick. You'll feel awful if you hyperstimulate. Let's freeze your embryo and we'll put an embryo back in a more natural context next month. And because I have 
undoubtedly discussed that possibility with all my patients before getting started. They know that that's a possibility. And while it can feel disappointing because I'd really love to have an embryo transfer, they understand that if it's not in their best interest, it's not right for them, it's not right for the embryo, it's not their best chance of having a healthy baby. In terms of cycles like egg freezing or embryo freezing, where we we weren't trying to achieve the two goals of getting someone pregnant in the same cycle as collecting eggs, generally we will plan a cycle that we have the ambition of freezing what we find and we'll choose those super safe medications and really mitigate the risk of hyperstimulation. We have done an episode on fresh or frozen, which is best, to which it's an individual answer. It's not one generic answer. Is there a time when the symptoms of OHSS peak? Would you be, if you're a candidate for it, would you start to feel it before your egg collection? No, you won't feel it before an egg collection. Uh, You might still feel if you have more follicles than most people, you might still feel more symptomatic. Uh, In IVF, in terms of egg number, it's a true rule that the better you do, the worse you feel. Because the more little hormone-making factories you have, the more hormone in your system and the more symptomatic you'll be. So women who have more eggs do feel more symptomatic in the lead up to an egg collection, but it's really the trigger medicine that causes hyperstimulation. It starts a cascade reaction in what's called the corpora lutei, the corpus luteum, corpora lutei. And basically the ovary creates a whole lot of different factors. It's not as simple as the ovary makes estrogen or the ovary makes progesterone. The ovary makes a whole lot of different things. Lots and lots of different factors, growth factors, cytokines, different vasodilator peptides. All of these different little molecules have really important and complicated jobs and we try and simplify it as doctors to help our patients understand the main principles. But in reality, nothing about human biology is ever simple. In terms of what those factors do, they help prepare the body for pregnancy. They help you have blood vessels that are accessible for invasion of the developing placenta. And something that we're meant to have a certain dose of, and if you have 10 or 20 times that dose, you have more fluid retention. You can have fluid retention on the belly. You can have fluid retention on the lung. You can even have fluid retention around the heart in the pericardial space. You can drag fluid out of your blood vessels into your tummy so that You've got what's called ascites, which is fluid buildup in your tummy, and it can put you at risk of having blood clots because you've got concentrated blood in your blood vessels. And so one of the concerns we have about women when they do have hyperstimulation is they might get a blood clot in the leg or a blood clot in the lung called a pulmonary embolus. The worst thing about hyperstimulation syndrome when it happens is that there's nothing we can do about it to make it go away. So our job as doctors, if it happens, is to support our patients to give them some treatments that try and prevent some potential complications like getting a blood clot. So for example, we might put a patient on a blood thinner so they don't get a blood clot and to do certain treatments to try and relieve and alleviate symptoms. So if someone's really swollen because they've got a lot of fluid in their tummy, we might drain that fluid to make them more comfortable or give them pain relief to make them more comfortable. But in reality, we have to wait out the symptoms of hyperstimulation until they go away. And the management is on the most part just supportive um, for the patient. 
And so being really careful about which trigger medicine we give and what our plan is in IVF and not being overly ambitious to try and achieve too much in the one cycle is the best way to protect a patient from hyperstimulation. When you do have hyperstimulation, there's early onset and then there's late onset hyperstimulation. So early onset is when you have symptoms or or concerns that are around the time of an egg collection, but if you don't do an embryo transfer, those will settle down pretty quickly within a week or so. But the worst type of hyperstimulation is when somebody does an embryo transfer in someone who's prone to hyperstimulation. Uh, So that's when you collect 20 eggs, your patient's feeling fine, you think, oh, will I get away with it? And you do an embryo transfer against your better judgment. Maybe the patient tries to twist your arm and sometimes, you know, in younger years you can be more susceptible to that type of pressure because the patient really wants to be pregnant. That's what's motivating them. And it's important to understand they don't really understand the risk. Even if you've told them the risk, they don't really understand the risk because they haven't treated women with hyperstimulation. They've probably never seen a woman with hyperstimulation and they certainly don't want to be a woman with hyperstimulation. Being firm and you know, making sure that you're acting in the patient's interest despite what they're asking you to do is super important. If a woman does get late onset hyperstimulation, it can get worse and worse and worse because they haven't just had an HCG trigger medicine that's in your system for six days, they've got a pregnancy pumping out HCG and the, 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 and the levels of HCG in the pregnancy, they don't stabilise and settle, they go up and up and up. So late onset hyperstimulation is the worst type of hyperstimulation. So really important to notice if a patient's at risk and do not do an embryo transfer for that patient and if you have a patient who is kind of borderline at risk and you think well should I or shouldn't I always err on the side of caution and whatever you do don't do a double embryo transfer because guess what in twin pregnancies the HCG levels are higher than if there's just one baby so you're much more likely to hyperstimulate with a double embryo transfer in a fresh stimulated cycle than you are with a single and one of the things that we can do as doctors to reduce a patient's risk of hyperstimulation is just transfer one embryo at a time. And how long does it take to recover from hyperstimulation? It really depends on whether it's very mild or very serious. If it's very serious it can take weeks and weeks and this may be shocking to some of our listeners but some patients with hyperstimulation even request termination of pregnancy because they just feel so bad, they just want it over. And it's the pregnancy and the HCG that's driving the hyperstimulation. So even women who've had difficult IVF journeys and have a much fought for pregnancy have requested termination or sometimes their doctors have insisted on termination to save a woman's life if she's really, really sick. So... That, that is pretty shocking, but it's also something that has happened in the world to some people. It's really important to understand that prevention is a thousand percent better than cure. If a patient is told that she's at risk of hyperstimulation because say she's got say 25 eggs collected at an egg collection and she's had a traditional trigger, it will settle down. She won't get serious hyperstimulation within two weeks and when her period arrives, she'll be back to normal. But if a woman has had an embryo transfer and is 
suffering late onset hyperstimulation, uh, then you know that can last for weeks and weeks. And we need to support her until it goes away because there's nothing we can do to make it go away any faster. You've talked about how there are things you can do with triggers and using frozen transfers to sort of manage people's symptoms to make sure they don't go into hyperstimulation. Can you see hyperstimulation on ultrasound? Because you said that, you know, there's like 10 or 20 more of these hormone pumping beings. Can you, can you see it? Well, you can see how many follicles there are. And so you know how many little factories there are. And if you choose to use, despite a really high number of follicles, a GNRH agonist trigger in an antagonist regimen, still your risk of hyperstimulation is going to be way less than one in a thousand. Because with that medication regimen, it just doesn't happen unless there are really strange and mitigating circumstances. It's kind of case report style stuff. Choosing the right regimen and choosing the right goal of a cycle for a patient is very important. It's really important for someone, say, for example, who has a polycystic ovary and who needs IVF. So that might be someone with malfactor infertility or someone who's tried ovulation induction for a long time and has not yet had a baby or where polycystic ovarian syndrome occurs in context of other fertility problems at the same time like endometriosis that stops them getting pregnant more naturally with ovulation induction. So, you know, I always say from a point of view of stimulating the ovary, it's like having a Ferrari when you have a polycystic ovary and you can't drive a Ferrari like you drive a Corolla. You know, you have to drive it very carefully. With a polycystic ovary, we need to either be extremely gentle or have a freeze-all strategy. They're the two potential ways of having IVF success. And sometimes even if our ambition was to be extremely gentle, sometimes that Ferrari just revs up anyway and we need to do a freeze-all cycle. IVF is about the end game. I always say it's a marathon, not a sprint. And we do the best for our patients by strategizing for their safety and making sure that they survive the IVF process without having serious complications. And sometimes that means what I call segregating the cycle and freezing embryos in one month and aiming for a transfer in another month. You mentioned just their polycystic ovaries. Is that the only risk factor of OHSS? No, it's not the only risk factor, but it's a big one. Uh, Being young and having lots of eggs or being older and having lots of eggs. There are still women who are older that also still do have lots of eggs. They're more the minority. Uh, But being young and having lots of eggs, you know, people get worried when they see pelvic ultrasounds because they see the words polycystic appearing ovary, even if they've got regular menstrual cycles. And that's because if you dragged 10 teenagers off the street who had nothing wrong with them, they'd all have polycystic looking ovaries. That's what ovaries look like in young women. So, you know, it's not about having a pathology like just having polycystic ovarian syndrome, you've got to have a high ovarian reserve to have hyperstimulation. And conversely, if you have a low ovarian reserve and you're you know, panicking about your AMH being lower than average, well, I guess the silver lining to the cloud there is that you're not capable of hyperstimulating. No matter what we do, you'll never be able to make that many eggs in a cycle and so you won't be at risk of hyperstimulation syndrome. If a patient is concerned about OHSS, Is there anything they can do to prepare themselves before egg freeze or IVF to reduce the impact or is that really up to the doctor? I think that nobody should be worried about OHSS before egg freezing if they've got a normal menstrual cycle. 
People who are at risk of OHSS are particularly women who are not able to use a GnRH agonist trigger. And that's women who have what we call hypothalamic amenorrhea. So women who have a disturbed menstrual cycle to the point where they don't have their brain chemicals and brain hormones responsive in the normal way are unfortunately not going to be able to use the safest medication in an IVF context. And as a doctor, you've got to be really careful with that group of patients. And they're often women who've had high levels of exercise, high levels of stress, burning the candle at both ends, very skinny, past history of eating disorders, particularly things like anorexia in teenage years. And women who, for those reasons and nothing to do with the ovary being polycystic, don't have a regular menstrual cycle. Because sometimes what can happen is if those rhythms are disturbed in adolescence, no matter what happens later, they may never return. And one of the important things about the very safe modern IVF medicines is we need the basic machinery of your brain and ovary to do what they're told and follow instructions. And if they are unable to do so, then the only medicines left to us are the more old-fashioned higher-risk medications. So it's really important for us to do a very comprehensive workup before taking a patient through an egg freeze or an IVF cycle and really getting to know their hormonal environment and understanding whether they are going to behave normally and what medications might be suitable for them. And in most cases where women do have a normal hormone profile, we can radically reduce risk for them and use very modern safe medicines. If a woman is not amenable to doing that, to not using the safest medicines, to maybe having to use the more old-fashioned medicines, then what we need to do is either modify factors as best we can to try and improve that for her so that she may in the future be more responsive to the safer medicines or just treat her extremely conservatively and not go for too much in one go using very low doses and if there is a degree of hyperstimulation, managing that and also managing her expectations of that. So that's, I guess, a subgroup. And, and it might be, for example, for elective egg freezing, which is generally extremely safe. And we've had lots of episodes on this podcast on elective egg freezing from different perspectives. But if you have a patient who's high risk of hyperstimulation because they have that history of having a, an abnormal hormonal axis from the hypothalamus, pituitary and ovarian response perspective and they want to freeze their eggs it might be for them that actually the risks outweigh the benefits in their particular case and you might decide not to do it because of concerns of their safety and hyperstimulation and instead potentially discuss other options with them. Thank you Raylia. I think the big takeaway here is that it's really not something to worry about and it happens very rarely. That's right and prevention is better than cure. So thinking about what we want to do, what we want to achieve, strategy in IVF. If we're planning for long-term, more than one baby, whether embryo-free should be the first step in an IVF process for some people. And, and just making sure that you have a really good preliminary workup so we know everything about you so that we can plan an IVF cycle to fit your needs and to reduce your risks. And if you do treat patients with that perspective hyperstimulation is thankfully something that's very rare in your practice as an IVF specialist. To support Knocked Up, leave us a review or recommend to a friend. 
Join us on Instagram at Knocked Up Podcast and join Raylia at Dr. Raylia Lou. And email us your questions to podcast at womenshealthmelbourne.com.au. Thank you.